0: chapter 1. Our Sunday School's class has been studying the book of Proverbs, and we have completed the first nine chapters, and there's a a division there uh, moving from chapter 9 to 10. And the first nine chapters are a plea from a father to his young son to choose the path of wisdom. And the the nine chapters um, really lay out a a contrast between wisdom and folly and uh, give a lot of good practical instruction for, for the young person to see the dangers of ignoring wisdom and choosing folly. Uh, but I have to admit, as I've studied the um, the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs and, and endeavored to teach that to the young people, that uh, it's been a challenge and probably even, fair to say, a struggle at times. Um, one of the things I've noticed and that I've really come to appreciate over the years is um, the fact that we have the New Testament. Um, you know, we're very fortunate to live in a time when It's been completed because a lot of times when I'm um, looking at Old Testament books and studying them and looking at those passages of Scripture, many times I still come away with questions about what the precise meaning of something is that a lot of times I can find the answers for in the New Testament. I mean, that's not to discount the book of Proverbs in any way. Certainly it's inspired Scripture. But uh, you know, I, I think Paul makes the same point that we certainly have something a lot better in the completion of the New Testament, and I find it very beneficial. So we're going to start in the book of Proverbs, but we're we're going to move around quite a bit, and we're going to end up we're going to move to the New Testament, and then eventually end back up in the book of Proverbs. And um, this probably be a little bit something different for me because. I only preach about once or twice a year, and I think I've always preached an expository message, and this one's pretty much a topical message, so hopefully, it will still, hopefully it'll still be beneficial. Let's go ahead and open in prayer, and then we'll start in Proverbs chapter 1. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the confidence that we have in your word. We thank you for uh, the authoritative message that it gives us, help us to... Uh, believe it, help us to take it to heart, help us to uh, attempt to implement it in our lives in every way that we can, and I ask your blessing on this service. I pray that you give me clarity as we, as I attempt to uh, uh, preach your word, and I ask that everything done here tonight be done for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. In Proverbs chapter 1, verse 2, we see the purpose for the book. It says to know wisdom and instruction. Uh, as I began to delve deeper into an understanding of what biblical wisdom is, um, I usually end up going to the first, you know, the, the place that I usually start, the same place I always start, I usually go to the dictionary. And nowadays I just go to Webster's online. I looked up the word wisdom in the dictionary and it said the quality of being wise. Of course, that wasn't real helpful, so I moved on down to the word wise. And the dictionary says having the ability to make a right decision by applying intelligent thought to experience and knowledge. Let me read that again. Having the ability to make a right decision by applying intelligent thought to experience and knowledge. Now, that's good, uh, but it doesn't really give us any spiritual directives. So, Then what I typically do is I went to my Strong's Concordance. And when I went to my Strong's Strong's Concordance, I found a little bit more than I was looking for, a little bit more than I anticipated. There are 14 different Hebrew and Greek words that are translated wisdom. And there's another 14 Hebrew and Greek words that are translated wise. So I began to look up the definition of those words in the Strong's Concordance and I've recorded some of what it had to say, and I will read that to you. Skillful, wit, discretion, knowledge, prudence, sense, ability, sound, circumspect, courage, heart, understanding, to be able to teach wisdom reason, intelligence, trickery, subtlety, judgment, spiritual insight. And here's some of the, uh, what it had to say for the word wise. Cunning, clear-sighted, to be right, distinguish, discern, magician, sagacious, cautious, acuity, clear, to be able to put together, comprehend. That, that's a lot. There's a lot there. There's a, there's a lot of good definitions for wisdom. And I think the one that uh, I've probably heard the most over the years is applied knowledge. And I think that falls a little short. Um, you know, how do you know if knowledge is being applied correctly? Uh, Dr. J. Vernon McGee. His definition of the word wisdom is the right use of knowledge. I think that's a little bit better—not just the use of knowledge, but the right use of knowledge. Still, another definition is skillful living or living by God's design. These are all good and helpful. And uh, you would think, after uh, you know, looking at all that and studying all that, that um, you'd have pretty good idea, that I would have pretty good idea what wisdom was. But as I looked at that, and as as I still continued to study the the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs, I still felt like there was was something missing. There was still quite a bit more to it than what I was finding. And so hopefully, um, we'll be able to see in God's word tonight some additional insight into wisdom, and I hope to answer these three questions. First of all, what is wisdom? What is true biblical wisdom? And second, how do you get it? And third, how do you know if you have it? Or how do you recognize it? How do you know if you have it or, or recognize it in someone else? So uh, hopefully we're going to find the answers to those questions tonight. Now, Proverbs is very practical. Um, as I said earlier, I certainly don't want to discount the book of Proverbs. Uh, it's very practical. It's been very beneficial, I think, for, for our Sunday school class. And I want to look at just a couple of examples. If you turn to Proverbs chapter 5, just to give you some examples of these chapters, from these chapters about just how practical it is, uh, verse, Proverbs chapter 5 verse 8, this is written by the father to the young son, uh, to the inexperienced son who is uh, struggling with sexual temptation or being enticed by immorality and verse 8 says, remove thy way far from her and come not nigh the door of her house, or do not go near the door of her house. Now, that's pretty plain. That's straightforward English. That's good, practical advice from the book of Proverbs on how to avoid sexual temptation. Just get away from the situation. If you turn over to Proverbs chapter 7, and look at verses 8 through 10, again, these these, these verses echo some of the same thoughts as Proverbs chapter 5, verse 8. It says, now, in, and in this particular case, this is referring to the context here is the young man who has already fallen victim to the immoral woman. It says, passing through the street near her corner. Now, that right there uh, is pretty descriptive. I mean, that's pretty, that, that lines right up with Proverbs chapter 5, verse 8. In other words, uh, don't put yourself in those situations. It may be true that a lot of times we, we say or we, we find ourselves in a situation and, and our claim may be that we were in the wrong place at the wrong time. But that's not an excuse. Uh, the question is, why were you in the wrong place at the wrong time? The book of Proverbs warns against that, that planning is to have been done to make sure that those types of situations are avoided, just like the advice given to the young son in Proverbs 5.8. Don't go near those places. Don't be in those situations. Uh, If we go on in those verses, verse 9, it says, In the twilight, in the evening, and in the black and dark night, and behold, there met him a woman with the attire of a harlot and subtle of heart. Now, don't be fooled by the world's dress standards. I mean, these verses make it clear: the way a person dresses is an indication of what kind of person they are. So, these are just some examples from the Book of Proverbs, of just how practical it is. And uh, the the uh, the these first nine chapters of the Book of Proverbs, not only to the unmarried, but also to the married. There's instruction in there for those that are married to, to be able to um, you know. To that they're supposed to make the same decisions and to heed the same warnings so that they don't fall into the trap of infidelity. Now, turn to, uh, back to chapter 1, Proverbs chapter 1. We're going to see the key to wisdom. Verse, or Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The key to wisdom is the fear of the Lord, the beginning of knowledge. What is the fear of the Lord? I've heard it said that it's an awe of God. I've heard it said that it's a reverence for God. It's an understanding that God is all-powerful and all-knowing, and God can bless or curse every decision that we make. It's being mindful and constantly aware of His presence. But sometimes I think we try to, we probably tend to make it a little bit too difficult. Uh, I mean, forgive me if I'm oversimplifying it, but l- let me illustrate. Uh, so many times I see a young child being warned by their parents that they're going to get a spanking if they don't obey. And I don't see any fear on the face of that child. Why? They don't believe the parent. Now, I would say that to fear the Lord is to believe the Lord, to fear God is to believe God. That child doesn't fear that parent because he knows he's probably going to get 67 more warnings before he actually gets, you know, before the parent follows through on the threat. He doesn't believe the parent. And I think we're going to see as we look at some of these additional scriptures that that's what the fear of the Lord is, is simply to believe God. Turn back to 1 Kings chapter 3. We're going to look at a passage of scripture that I think... Probably everybody's pretty familiar with, with regard to Solomon and his wisdom. 1 Kings chapter 3. In this situation, David has died and gone to be with the Lord, and Solomon is assuming the throne. And in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 5, Bible says, In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give thee. In verse 6, And Solomon said, Thou hast showed unto thy servant David, my father, great mercy, according as he walked before thee in truth and in righteousness and in uprightness of heart with thee. And thou hast kept for him this great kindness that thou hast given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. First thing that Solomon does is praise the Lord for his faithfulness recognizes that God keeps his word that God keeps his promises it's recorded in 2nd Samuel seven twelve that God had promised David that his son would sit on his throne and Solomon was aware of that promise and Solomon now praises the Lord for keeping that promise in verse 7 we see the humility of Solomon Solomon says and now O Lord my God thou hast made thy servant king instead of David my father and I am but a little child I know not how to go out or to come in Solomon, in his, in his humility, admits that he's got a lot to learn. And one of the things that we, um, you know, that, we, that we observed in our Sunday school class over the last several weeks was that in the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs, that's one of the points that is constantly emphasized. That in order for a young person to acquire wisdom, they have to first be able to humble themselves and admit that they don't know everything. They have to admit that they're simple and inexperienced and that they have a lot to learn. The same way that an unbeliever can never get saved until they admit that they're lost. We can't, we can't become wise until we, learn that we, until we learn that we have much to learn. Solomon clearly recognized that. And um, Jeremiah 9.23 says, let, the, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Uh, even after acquiring some wisdom, don't become puffed up don't become proud Um, no matter how much we know and of course Solomon was considered the wisest man that ever lived no matter how much we know our knowledge is always going to be insignificant compared to the Lord there's always going to be a lot more for us to learn but humility must precede the acquisition of wisdom in verse 8 Solomon recognizes his place he says and thy servant is in the midst of thy people which thou hast chosen, a great people that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people that I may discern between good and bad, for who is able to judge this, thy so great a people? Solomon continues to demonstrate that servant's heart, recognizing his place, also recognizing that the people that he's to be the ruler of are not his people, they're God's people. And Solomon refers to them that way. He's referring to them as thy people, not, not my people. In verses, uh, in verses uh, 11 and 12, verse 10, And the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing, and God said unto him, Because thou hast asked this thing, and hast not asked for thyself long life, neither hast asked riches for thyself, nor hast asked the life of thine enemies, but hast asked for thyself understanding to discern judgment. Behold, I have done according to thy word. Lo, I have given thee a wise and an understanding heart, so that there was none like thee before thee, neither after thee shall any arise like unto thee. Now, that word understanding in verses 11 and 12 is the same Hebrew word that is elsewhere in Scripture translated wisdom. God granted Solomon his request. God gave him great wisdom. Now, verse 14 is really the one that I wanted to get to in order to emphasize uh, the, the biblical wisdom that that I think the book of Proverbs is referring to. God says in verse 14, And if thou wilt walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as thy father David did walk, then I will lengthen thy days. God warned Solomon that his behavior, that his lifestyle, that his conduct, his manner of living would have to match his understanding. In other words, it wasn't going to be enough for Solomon to just have head knowledge, just having a storehouse of facts wasn't going to get him anything. In order to receive God's blessing, he was going to have to translate that knowledge into his daily living. He was going to have to put it into practice. He was going to have to be obedient to the Lord. The same thing, we don't have to turn back to this passage, but in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, God, speaking through Moses, says, I have taught you statutes and judgments. Keep, therefore, and do them for this is your wisdom in the sight of the nations now that's interesting because typically or at least a lot of times in my cases when I, in my case when i think of wisdom i think of something that you hear not necessarily something that you see and yet there's a pattern throughout scripture that wisdom is being presented as something that is seen something that is observed in other words it's not enough for people to Merely mouth the words or let, the, let wisdom roll off their tongue. True wisdom is translated into obedience to the Lord. And that's what God tells the Israelites. He says, the other nations are going to see your wisdom when they see you keeping and doing all of my commands. Now, turn to the New Testament in, in the book of Acts, chapter 6. And we're going to look at some aspects of wisdom with regard to the life of Stephen. Acts chapter 6, again a passage I'm sure probably just about everybody is familiar with. This is a, a passage of scripture where the apostles have come to the conclusion that they have too much to do, there's not enough time and hours in the day to get it done, and so they solicit the help of the disciples and ask the disciples to pick out some, to choose some men who will be able to help them carry out some of the things that they are not making their highest priority in verse 3 in Acts chapter 6 it says wherefore brethren look ye out among you seven men of honest report full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom whom we, whom we may appoint over this business and then in verse 5 the saying please the whole multitude and they chose Stephen so we see that Stephen was a man full of wisdom now what is, what is it about Stephen that made him so wise? We're not told nearly as much about the other men that were chosen as we're told about Stephen. Well, drop down to verse 10. We see that Stephen is uh, disputing with those in the synagogue and um, he's not talking about politics. He's not just arguing about insignificant trivial matters. He's having discussions about the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 10, it says, And they were not able to resist the wisdom by which he spake. Now, down in verse 14, we we see what Stephen is disputing about. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. That's what Stephen is making his focal point. Jesus was the thing that Stephen was having these disputes about. Again, it wasn't insignificant trivial things. It was there was nothing more important than that. That's the message that Stephen was trying to get across. In verse 15 it says and all that sat in the council looking steadfastly on him saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Now what does does an angel look like? I don't know. Uh, I can surmise a few things. I think that uh, the look on Stephen's face, I, I think, was probably a look of innocence. I think it was probably um, a look of peace. I think it was a look of trust. Um, but a couple of different times when I was when I was preparing this message, I was sitting contemplating what that look was, what what you know, how to describe that look on Stephen's face, and. Uh, couple of different times as I was doing that I could hear the piano being played in the other room and somebody was playing tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take him at his word and I thought you know there's no better description than that to describe the look on Stephen's face I mean that was what the wisdom of Stephen was it was believing God taking him at his word Jesus was gone and yet Stephen was still focused on him, he was still believing in him, it was his number one concern and priority to witness to these people, to let them know what was, you know, that there was nothing more important than that. Now, in chapter 7, let's notice some additional things about Stephen. Uh, Verse 2, it says, And he said, Men, brethren, and fathers, hearken the God of glory. Now, Stephen begins here, um, again, his focus is God. He begins with, you know, he's, he's now asked to answer these accusations about this blasphemy. And instead of immediately launching into a defense of himself, which a lot of people would be inclined to do, that's not his concern. He's, he doesn't seem the least bit concerned about his own safety or his own destiny whatever it is that they're going you know whatever it is that this mob or this group of rulers could do to him that seems irrelevant to him he's going to use this opportunity to preach about God and you have to read a pretty good long ways down into chapter 7 before you can even find a verse in which Stephen doesn't refer to the Lord just like Solomon Stephen begins to praise the Lord for his faithfulness for his Keeping all of the promises, and he reminds these people of all of the things that they should know, how that God was faithful to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to Joseph and on and on. That's what Stephen is concerned is concerned with is presenting God, and he's giving a defense of the gospel or a defense of God, if you will. Um, and again, don't don't be uh, don't be confused. It's not about You know, it's not about Abraham. It's not about Isaac. It's not about Jacob. They're just part of the story. The same way that Stephen is just part of the story. The same way that we're just part of the story. It's about God, and Stephen makes sure that he doesn't lose sight of that as he's explaining uh, his defense of everything that's going on. His defense of Jesus Christ. Now, notice in verse ten, in Acts chapter seven, verse ten as Stephen has begun to uh, explain about God's faithfulness to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. He gets to Joseph, and in verse 10 he says, And delivered him out of all his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now notice Stephen refers to the wisdom of Joseph, and makes mention of the fact that that wisdom was given to Joseph by God. Now, hold your place in the book of Acts, but jump back to Genesis chapter 42. There's this one verse I want to look at back here. I think it's important that we look at it. Genesis chapter 42, verse 18. It says, And Joseph said unto them the third day, This do and live, for I fear God. Now, Joseph is talking with his brothers and you can see that Joseph is making it clear that all of the decisions that he's made are rooted in his fear of the Lord. That's where he gets his wisdom. His response to Potiphar's wife, his response to the way his brothers are treating him, demonstrates his wisdom and... uh, his wisdom is rooted in the fear of the Lord. Also, it's interesting, uh, go back to the book of Acts chapter 7. And let's look at verse 10 again. Acts chapter 7, verse 10. It's interesting that the, in the same way that it was stated in Deuteronomy chapter 4 that wisdom was actually something that could be seen, that it was something that if the Israelites truly possessed was supposed to be visible in the sight of all of the surrounding nations in, in Acts chapter 7 verse 10 Joseph's wisdom is referred to as something that is in the sight of Pharaoh again something to be seen not so much the words that are said again not so much the, the things that roll off the tongue but what somebody observes in somebody's everyday life is an indication of whether or not that person truly possesses wisdom and that's what it's referring to here with regard to Joseph. Pharaoh was able to see all of the all, you know, this we're we're talking 20 years of uh, opportunity for Pharaoh and and the Egyptians to observe every action that Joseph makes and to see what kind of an individual he is, to see whether or not God is something that he just talks about or God is something uh, someone that he truly believes in and and lives his daily life by. Now, jump down to the end of Acts chapter 7 verse 52. It would have been probably beneficial to have gone through the whole chapter, but we don't have time, but uh, we could see that Stephen has not lost his focus one bit. His focus is on Jesus Christ. In verse 52, Stephen says, "...which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one." Of course, he's referring to Jesus. Now, he doesn't seem to be concerned about his own safety. I mean, when you start making accusations like that, when you're basically pointing the finger right in their face and saying, you know, you guys are the ones that killed him. This is, you know, Jesus is hanging on that cross because of what you guys did. Now, we obviously know that it was the Lord's plan, but you understand what Stephen's doing. He's not concerned about his own safety. I mean, I, I think it would probably be inaccurate... To say that Stephen wasn't interested in self-preservation, I'm sure he probably was. He probably had a wife and children. We're not told. But, I mean, I'm sure he wasn't looking to die. But yet he's not interested in compromising, you know, anything about his relationship with the Lord. He's not interested in making any compromises, even if it results in his death. He's He's more interested in making sure that he presents God... Accurately and, and making sure that he brings glory to God than he is in preserving his own life. Uh, down in verses 55 and 56, it says, And he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and, be, and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. And down in verse 59, it says, And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God, and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So again, we see the consistency that that Stephen has his priorities straight. Jesus is the focal point of his life. He's the reason that Stephen is doing the things that he's doing. Now, Paul was there. Um, Paul was unsaved. He wasn't yet converted. And um, I'm sure that this had a, a tremendous impact on Paul. Um, later on, after Paul was saved, uh, when he was writing his letter to the Philippians, in, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And just prior to that, in, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul is going over his personal accomplishments. He's going over his education and his pedigree, his history. Uh, all of the things that he thought were so important prior to his salvation um There in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, I think they're worthless. I throw them on the scrap heap. I count them as dung. They're of no value to me. Paul had realized that something that he didn't know when he was there uh, observing Stephen's martyrdom that uh, Paul thought he had everything at that time. He had power, he had position. Um, I mean, it's it's absolutely amazing the, the power that Paul had. I mean, to be able to go into cities and just call names of people and have them thrown into prison. Uh, Paul had great influence. And yet, when he gets to Philippians chapter 3, he looks back and he says, everything that I had prior to my conversion was worthless. And I think that Paul was probably thinking about Stephen. Because looking back, Paul I'm sure remembering the, the sermon that Stephen preached as he was facing those accusations Paul realized that Stephen didn't make any mention of that stuff Stephen had everything Stephen had Christ and Paul realizes later on he didn't have anything because he didn't have Christ it's all the difference and I think sometimes we lose sight of that I, I know I have a, a, a tendency to lose sight of that Sometimes I look around at uh, some of the unbelievers and I think, you know, they're not so much different than me. They are a lot different than me. They are a lot different than us. Uh, Paul was not in any way the same person he was after he got saved as the person that he was that stood there and watched Stephen be stoned. And I'm sure it was very hurtful for Paul and and uh, he didn't mention that incident specifically but many times in Paul's life as a Christian as you study the writings of Paul you can tell that there's a lot of regret there's a lot of uh pain and anguish in in looking back and 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 realizing his failures even though he knew he was forgiven and we we and we're in that same situation we know as believers that that, uh, you know, that we're forgiven, that we don't have to dwell on the past, but yet sometimes we have a tendency to look back and have regret and to think about what could have been. Well, I think certainly uh, Paul was doing that. I'm sure Paul probably uh, thought back many, many times, and, uh, you know, that, that uh, image of Stephen's face was probably imprinted in Paul's mind uh, from way back when he was martyred. Uh, let's turn to the book of James, I think James has something very uh, significant and beneficial to add with regard to wisdom. When I think of James, I think of uh, you know I think of the epitome of being practical. I mean, if somebody mentions the word practical in the Bible in the same sentence, usually that's the first thing I think of is I think of the book of James. Probably so practical that uh, you know many times uh, three or four hundred years ago, people were were trying to throw the book out of the Bible, and. Uh, We're all familiar with the book of James, uh, particularly James' statements about faith. And uh, we're not going to look at chapter 2, but that's the one that most people are familiar with. And uh, I'm paraphrasing, but basically uh, what James has to say about faith is James says, if the kind of faith that you have is the kind of faith that all you can do is talk about, then he says that kind of faith doesn't save anybody. He says the kind of faith that saves people is the kind of faith that gets translated into words and actions and deeds. Now we're all familiar with that. I think everybody's pretty familiar with James' statements about faith. But in chapter 3, he basically says the same thing about wisdom. Look at James chapter 3, verse 13. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge amongst you? Let him show out of a good conversation, his works with meekness of wisdom. He says the same thing about wisdom that he says about faith. He said, you can talk about being wise all you want, but show me that you're wise. The the word conversation there means conduct, manner of living, behavior. Again, the same thing that James has to say about faith. Talk about wisdom all you want, but prove that that you're wise by turning your wisdom into obedience and into action and into works. Verse 17 in James chapter 3. But wi- but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. It's interesting that James uses that, that phraseology that is from above. That's a direct contrast. A lot of people want to talk about wisdom. And they may have worldly wisdom. But there's a world of difference. Between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. And that's what James is pointing out. And in verse 17. One of the things that he listed there. Was good fruits. In other words. Wisdom that is from above. Is going to translate into action. It's going to translate into obedience. Uh, It's easy for people in this world to think that they have great wisdom. Um, I think of investors like Warren Buffett. you know, everybody, if you turn on the news uh, in the midst of a financial crisis, that's the person that they want to ask advice. But that's worldly wisdom. That's obviously not the kind of wisdom that James is referring to, the wisdom that is from above. That worldly wisdom can produce incredible wealth, but only wisdom from God can produce something that is of eternal value, something that you can take with you. All right, now let's turn back to the book of Proverbs, and we'll try to wrap this up. Proverbs chapter 1. How do we acquire wisdom? How do we get it? We get it by studying God's Word. It's hard work. One of the things that, um, again, as we've studied the first nine chapters of Proverbs in our Sunday School class, one of the things that's made abundantly clear is that the acquisition of wisdom is hard work. It doesn't just happen. You can't circumvent the process. You, don't, you know, you heard the expression, you don't go to bed with your, pillow, with your Bible under your pillow and wake up wise. It's hard work. You've got to study God's word. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 6 says, To understand a proverb and the interpretation, the words of the wise and their dark sayings. Now, you don't have to turn here, but Proverbs chapter 25, verse 2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out the matter. I think of the uh, illustration that Andrew J used a couple of weeks ago about the little kid at camp looking for his $5. No effort. He doesn't want to move plates and cups around in the garbage can to find his $5. That's the thing we're talking about with wisdom. It's hard work. You've got to search it out. You've got to seek diligently for it. Now, what is the price of wisdom? Turn to Proverbs chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Many times in the book of Proverbs, the... Um, The young person is admonished to place great value on wisdom. And um, it's compared to rubies and silver and gold. Look at verses 4 and 5. If thou seekest her as silver and searchest for her as for hid treasures, then shalt thou understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. And then turn over to Proverbs chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. Of course, somebody might say, well, here we go again. The the Bible always has to drag money into it. Yeah, that's what we understand. That's what we all struggle with. That's the way God chooses to do it. Proverbs chapter 8, verses 10 and 11, Receive my instruction, and not silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold, for wisdom is better than rubies, and all the things that may be desired are not to be compared to it. Now don't overlook that. I underline the word all in my Bible. For all and all the things that may be desired are not to be compared to it. We are to place a great value on godly biblical wisdom. Now, you know, when I try to put it in perspective of what kind of value do we place on it, I think of a couple of things. Um, it might be painful for some people to go spend fifty or $100 on a hundred dollars on a good study Bible, but they might spend that same amount every month on cable TV and not think anything of it. Or they might spend that same amount every month or every week going out to their favorite restaurant and they may not think anything of it. And that might be an indication, indication of how much value they're really placing on biblical wisdom. Galatians chapter 6, verse 6. You don't have to turn there. It says... Let him that is taught communicate or give unto him that teacheth. Again, it's a privilege to be able to come to a church where you can hear um, the Bible clearly taught in an uncompromising way. It's not free, there's a price, but the Bible says it's worth it, that we're to, we're to place a great value on wisdom. And it shouldn't be a burden to us or it shouldn't be painful for us to pay for it. It's far better than silver or gold or rubies or all the things that may be desired. okay, now uh, the three questions that I had at the beginning. what is wisdom? Uh, Christ or Paul said in first Corinthians chapter one verses twenty four and thirty that Christ is wisdom. Christ is our wisdom. That's what wisdom is. If we want wisdom, we have to get Christ. And that's what Paul realized in Philippians chapter 3. That's what he was writing to those people, that he was, um, you know, discarding all of those things that he thought were important. But he said, Christ is all in all. Christ is wisdom for the believer. How do I get it? First, by accepting or trusting Christ as my savior. And then by studying his word, it takes intentional planning and effort to acquire wisdom. And how do I recognize it? Not by what you hear come out of somebody's mouth, but what you see them doing in their daily life. Our obedience to God's word demonstrates whether or not we have wisdom. All right, let's go ahead and stand and we'll be, I'll close this in prayer and we'll be dismissed. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, I pray that each person here indeed places a great value on it, that we uh, both individually and as a church uh, do everything we can to uphold the great honor that we have to, to teach your word, to preach your word, to listen to your word, but most of all to obey your word, to bring glory to you. Lord, I pray that we would allow it to Penetrate our lives; that it would enrich our lives, and that we would uh, just cherish it; that we would see it for for everything that it is; that it is the answer to our problems, and that we can, as Paul said, that we can know Christ by knowing His Word. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you're dismissed. Thank you.